I had a great example in Dr. Hansen, and one of the things he told me when I first started on the faculty was, I probably ought to figure out how to do to the pelvis what they had done to the femur. And that really ignited everything. Welcome to the OTA Podcast, your home for conversations with leading experts in orthopedic trauma. Please note that the views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Orthopedic Trauma Association or its members. And now a word from OTA sponsor, Skeletal Dynamics. The distal elbow set by Skeletal Dynamics is the only comprehensive solution for all distal elbow fracture dislocations. The set contains the internal joint stabilizer for elbow instability, an anatomic radial head replacement, and solutions to manage proximal ulna, coronoid, and radial head fractures. Download the Distal Elbow Trauma Podcast, available August 25th, to learn more about this one-of-a-kind solution. Also available on August 25th is a session on the advantages of the extended FCR approach for treating distal radius fractures. Tune in to find out how much more you can accomplish with an extra inch of incision. Hello and welcome to the OTA podcast channel. I'm Dr. Connor Clavino, your host for this episode. By way of introduction, I'm a traumatologist and associate professor of orthopedics at Harborview Medical Center, University of Washington in Seattle, Washington. Here at the OTA Podcast Committee, we are pleased to bring you an episode of the Icons in Orthopedics series. This is an opportunity for us to speak with individuals who have been instrumental in the shaping of orthopedic trauma as a specialty. It is my privilege and pleasure to introduce our guest today, Dr. Chip Rout. Dr. Rout is Professor and Andrew Burgess Endowed Chair in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, the Texas Trauma Institute, and Memorial Hermann Hospital, Texas Medical Center. He has had an extensive career in orthopedic trauma surgery and has been one of the most influential figures in our specialty, particularly in the topic of pelvic and acetabular surgery. I could go on and on with lectures, book chapters, publications, but one of the few people that doesn't need too much of an introduction, Dr. Chip Rout. Chip, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. You've been one of the most well-known figures in orthopedic trauma, but many members, particularly maybe some of the junior members, may not know your story. Tell us a little bit about your journey in medicine and orthopedics, I guess to say uh, how you got to where you are. Well, I got to where I am because a lot of people helped me get to where I am, and I had a lot of good luck along the way. I I got interested in medicine when I was a little kid. I had a grandfather that was a local doctor in my little small town, and I grew up on a cotton and cattle farm. and so. The people in the community there seemed to respect him a whole lot. He had died when I was two years old, so I never really knew him, but I had access to his medical books and I could look through his encyclopedias of medicine and just see all the different conditions of things. They were dated books, but they were fascinating to me. So I could mess around with his stethoscope and stuff like that. I enjoyed that. One of my best friends growing up's dad was a local surgeon, and so that was intriguing to me. And then I got a job at the hospital when I was 18 years old as an orderly because it was an air-conditioned job. And if you've ever worked on a farm in the summertime in Texas, it's a very hard work. It's very hot work. So an air-conditioned job was really, for me, I enjoyed that a lot. I got to work with some nurses that were fantastic, and they taught me about taking care of patients and doing all the things that really were important for taking care of patients. And I got exposure to the local doctors there, and especially the surgeon 
sort of took me under his wing and let me scrub on some cases with him when I was in high school and college, just working weekends and summers there in our little local hospital. So I got the bug early. I had nothing else that interested me at all. So college for me was pretty crucial. I went to AM for three years and did summer school so I could get through college faster. And then I went to medical school in Galveston and I chose to go to UTMB in Galveston just because it was the oldest medical school in Texas and had a great history in those days. All of the patients were funneled down to Galveston for care, especially the indigent patients. So Galveston had the patients and that's where the learning was. So I went down there and had a really good experience. I ran into some people that sort of got me shooted in the right way. I had very good role models there. Joan Richardson was a neonatologist who looked after me and sort of helped me learn how to learn. And Renuka Reddy was an OB-GYN doctor there, and she was really good to me. And John Calverly was a neurologist that uh, sort of helped me uh, get along. And then I ran into an orthopedic surgeon named Ben Allen. Ben Allen was a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, and he's the one that sort of directed me to go to Vanderbilt. I had a classmate named Angelo Madalino who had gone, he had finished medical school in three years, and Angelo had really helped me a whole lot. So by way of all of those people, I ended up getting a residency at Vanderbilt, and that was sort of the place I really wanted to go. I'd rotated there as a visiting student and just I had a man crush on Neil Green. Neil Green was the director of the residency program there and a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, and he was encyclopedic in his knowledge. He knew everything about everything and was a, a vicious Socratic educator. And I pretty much fell in love with him and his style. And the residents there were very good to me. The senior residents were awesome. And I just got swept up in the whole Vanderbilt thing. And then as I went along, Mark Swinkowski came to Vanderbilt and sort of turned the place on his head. He was a young traumatologist and we weren't really doing anything for trauma. Everything was pretty much traction and spica cast, maybe some delayed surgeries. And Mark came and everything was done the night of injury the day after. That was incredibly appealing to me because I'd had two or three years in my residency where we didn't do anything. And then I had the last two years where we did everything. And you could just see the dramatic difference that trauma as this little budding subspecialty had. The trauma surgeons were coming along with us, you know, the general trauma surgeons. And so when I finished my residency, Mark went back from Vanderbilt to Harborview. And so he just took me with him. My intent was to stay at Vanderbilt and work there with him and Roy Sanders. Roy was there as well as a visiting fellow and then a junior faculty for a while. And those guys had a big impact on me. They gave me AO manuals and I loved what they did. And so not many other people at Vanderbilt liked trauma too much. Not many of the residents that went there enjoyed trauma, but I loved it. So they treated me very good, like almost like a, a little brother. And then Mark took me to, to Seattle with him when he moved there to be the chief of trauma. And that was really serendipitous for me because my wife was a radiology resident. He helped get her a job there. And they expanded their residency, and that helped a lot. So I did a fellowship there and then stayed on the faculty. I was there for 25 years, and things were, you know, sort of building. It was uh, very, very busy and exciting at the time. So, you know, I sort of grew up in the system there. Everyone had a subspecialty at the time, Dr. Hansen. Ted Hansen was an iconic guy who was both a detail and a concept man, and he sort of made sure that everybody had something to do. The guy that was doing pelvis before me had resigned. So that left that open for me just as I was joining the faculty. We had a very, very functional and effective vital biomechanics lab that Alan Tenser was running and Rich Harrington was helping him with. And Alan had done a lot of biomechanics, but never really done had done pelvic biomechanics. And so it was really exciting. We had a 
department siphoning process where they would take our income into a department granting area. And so you could apply for departmental grants that were, it was really your money. So I, I had applied for some of those and that funded some of our research at a young resident named Peter Simonian, who was, I think Peter published 50 something papers during his residency. So all of these people just sort of swept me in the current of what was going on. There was a lot of development with pelvic techniques. Pelvic surgery was a brand new field. We each had our own little subspecialty as faculty there, and that was sort of my assignment. And I really enjoyed it a lot, and my partners didn't enjoy it so much. And so I just volunteered to take care of as many as they would allow me to. And so that put a lot of experience in my lap. And then, you know, Alaska, Montana, Idaho, all those physicians fed us their trauma, and my experience just grew and grew and grew. And so my availability was about 100%, and that really uh, helped a whole lot. And then the lab helped a whole lot. And, you know, Alan Tenser and Peter Simonian were fantastic. And Mark was a great leader. My partners fed me all the patients and that was it. Then uh, about eight years ago, I moved down here to Texas and that was Dr. Burgess and Dr. Munns and Dr. Aker and all the whole crew down here just sort of took me under their wing and uh, let me come back home to Texas and sort of do the same thing down here. So the journey hadn't really been a journey. It's been a slide, I guess. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Other than the three years of college of just really the stress of getting into medical school, that was an extremely stressful time because I had zero. I had no other interest. I had nothing I wanted to do at all. It would have been, it would have been terrible if I couldn't have gotten into medical school. But once I was in medical school, I was in the groove. Hmm. That's, a, that's a long story for for a lot of things around the country. And, and so I want to take back to, to Vanderbilt a little bit. You said you fell in love with trauma. The first person that was a mentor, it looked like, was Neil Green, who did pediatric orthopedics. And and at that time, trauma wasn't really its own subspecialty, correct? It was sort of burgeoning itself. So what interested you about trauma? What drew you to trauma as opposed to doing joints or spine or hand? or What brought you to trauma, do you think? I think it was just the functional result was so gratifying. So I had also had, you know, up until my PGY3 year, I had really not done any operating on fractures very much. And then when Mark moved, the very first night I was on call with him, we had an open femur fracture. And the times before him, we would have done an IND. It wouldn't have been very sufficient. We would have put the patient in traction. We would have considered a spike of cast. We might have nailed it later on, maybe a week or two later. It would have been difficult. And when Mark came, we took him to the operating room. We did a very thorough irrigation into Breedmont. We did a ream integrate statically locked medullary nail. They were kind of new. And that guy went home three days later. And I had never seen anything like that in my life. It was, a, it was like the Aurora Borealis. It was a phenomenon. I had never seen a patient have that quick of a dramatic outcome. And so everything else, I loved everything else. I loved peds. I loved, I loved it all. But it just mm -hmm. all got pushed away. I mean, it, that guy was rocking an old Coca-Cola machine trying to get coins out of it, and it crushed him and broke his femur. And I can still remember it. This was 1985 or 86, and I remember okay. like it was yesterday. Anyway, well, we operated all night long. I loved that stuff, and it just fed me. Whether it was fate, coincidence, or, or what have you, that you went to Seattle with Mark. And, and tell us a little bit about the evolution of pelvic anastabular surgery there. You mentioned you know, kind of what the background was, but tell us a little bit about that story of, of how you started figuring out some of the things you did and why you did some of the things you did that were pretty innovative at the time. I had a great example in Dr. Hansen. And one of the things he told me when I first started on the faculty was I probably ought to figure out how to do to the pelvis what they had done to the femur. 
And that really ignited everything. Just a very simple little comment ignited everything because he had had this incredible career success by nailing femurs. And he just thought that if we would do the same thing for the back of the pelvis and the front of the pelvis, the patients would get better and they would do a whole lot better. And, you know, he just said, why don't you figure it out? And then my wife was in charge of CT ultrasound mammo at Harborview at the time. And so I could get post-op CT scans on all the patients. And then we had this thriving lab where we could do these operations and sort of teach ourselves how to do them in the lab and then stress them to see if they would work before we actually did them on people. And then I had an x-ray tech named Jane Anaba, and Jane was a very experienced x-ray tech, and nobody at the time really enjoyed doing pelvic surgery because it was so befuddling. And so she would be my x-ray tech, and she helped me sort out you know, what we needed to see for an inlet and what an inlet should be and what we needed to see for an outlet. And then we could work out the imaging together. And then once she sort of figured it out, she was automatic. And once we figured out what we needed to see in order, what the boundary should be for all these different osseous fixation pathways, we, we didn't know what to call them. We knew there were pathways in the bone that we could put screws in. And it was just like Dr. Hansen said, you can nail the pelvis like you nail the femur, just figure it out. And so there was this time that we just figured it out. And then we had interested residents and interested fellows that came along and everybody got into it. And it was, it was just a whole lot of fun. And there was a lot of enthusiasm across the country. You know, it became very popular. People wanted to know about it. And it was an exciting, I'd say the first 10 years of my career were very, very exciting just because of all the technical things that were evolving and developing. And then the patients were just doing great. And that was the other thing that was so, so impressive. You had these patients that in the past were, they just didn't do well but the patients that we were fixing were just doing great. And so that was a very addicting technology. What years was this? You said your first 10 years, what years was that? I started in 89. And then I would say 89 to 2000 was probably the most exciting time there for me. 2000 to 2010 was almost like it was just torrential rain, a clinical experience, a clinical experience for the second, that second decade there. You know, it's, it's just like, doing batting practice, you just had so much time in the cage, you know, just so many patients that we were taking care of and so many operations that it became all these things that were novel became very automatic. What were some of those changes? So when, when you first started out, what were you guys doing to broken pelvises? And then what were some of the things that were changing during those first 10 years that you saw? Well, I guess the implants would be the first thing. Uh, you know, we had two whole four, five narrow DC plates to fix the front and the back of the pelvis. And that wasn't very good. The three, five DC plates weren't so hot. The recon plates came out in the late 80s, early 90s, but people had a lot of mistrust of them and didn't really know how to use them. And then longer screws, we didn't have long screws. We didn't have any cannulated screws. So we had six, five screws that were fully threaded, but they only went to 130 millimeters. So we didn't have a lot of devices. And so just that whole bit of developing clamps, developing plates, developing screws, and going through the developments of cannulated screws and the evolution of all these techniques was uh, quite a wave uh, to ride. I'd also say that you know, when I first started, general surgeons or urologists or even OB-GYN doctors would do the surgical approaches for us. And after about five of those, I realized I just didn't need that anymore. And I needed to just know the exposures myself and mm -hmm. what their intent, you know, the intent of an obstetrical cesarean section or a gynecological fan and steel approach is just not the intent of what we were doing. And what what they're trying to do with their approach is just not what we were trying to do. The way a general surgeon approaches a hernia repair in the inguinal area is really not the way we needed to get there for the acetabulum. And so 
I was lucky because Dr. Mayo had taught me an extremely good way to do a Coker Langenbeck and also an ilioinguinal. He had taught me Letourneau's, you know, three-window ilioinguinal, but with the intrapelvic interval was how I learned it. So I knew this stopper or this intrapelvic interval. That's how I was taught an ilioinguinal. So I didn't realize that everybody else wasn't getting that. And so I think that was also very unique is because we could do so much more with the acetabulum than other people were having trouble with just because we had this intrapelvic interval. And I thought everybody was doing it, but they weren't. We didn't have the internet. We, we had meetings that we relied upon sharing ideas or visiting and stuff like that. So, and if you were doing something unusual, people were usually mistrustful of you rather than excited for you. They it wasn't a lot of people saying, Hey, would you please teach me how to do that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's an interesting history of even the approaches for the acetabulum. So many people were reading the text or had seen a lecture and were doing the same standard three windows staying on the same side of the table, but yet you guys cross the table for the third window. And yeah, I never, yeah, so that's how I learned it. And so I didn't realize that that was something that other people were missing. And so you'd see people's x-rays and say, why, why are you doing it that way? You know, and they would say that they were doing the same thing as you were, but they, you know, they, they weren't. And I, you know, I didn't know enough how to, I didn't have the confidence to say, well, you should be doing this. I just, just sort of kept doing what I was doing. Oh, that's great. That's great. And so for this topic of acetabular fractures, how have you seen that changed over time? Oh, well, that's changed a whole lot because, you know, it went from sort of this uh, terrible dreaded surgery to now the surgery that everybody wants to do. I think it's a difficult surgery and it's just one of those things that I, you know, I'm very biased because of the exposure that I had to it. But I think right now you just have so many people doing the operations that you just don't have anybody getting much experience. You have certain areas of you know, focal places where they have people that are sort of designated to do it, but you have so many other places across the country and the globe where everybody's just taking a swing at it. And it's just hard for people to get experience with difficult things if they do one or two a month. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's an evolution or a de-evolution. It, it seems to me that we evolved, we learned, we developed uh, techniques, all these different things. And over the last five or 10 years, all that people have tried to do is make it simple and easier and, and almost dumbed it down to where you take an implant, you shove it on, you put some screws in it, and that's that's your reduction in fixation. And, you know, unfortunately, it's an articular injury, and it's just not that way. You have to be able to see the fracture planes, clean them, clamp them, reduce them. This minimally invasive stuff for the acetabulum, you can do it. It just doesn't look very good. Most people, if you were the patient, you wouldn't want that. So sure. I, I've seen it sort of, I've seen it sort of crest. And now it seems like it's just getting disseminated to the point where it's not, not so great. But, you know, I, I can't help that. Sure, sure. And how about for pelvic fractures? How have you seen an evolution in technology besides what you did in the early years, but more recently in the past few years, anything that's, that's changed? or? Yeah, I think people have gotten, you know, I think there's a certain subset of people that really understand the osteology and the fluoroscopic correlation and the, you know, the ability to get it reduced and things like that. I think that's really changed in a good way. And I think a lot of people know how to do that. And I think they can put in safe screws. I think it's still very difficult for, you know, some people's brain just doesn't work that way. And the osteology and the fluoroscopic correlation is difficult. I also think that some of the newer technology is extremely helpful. There are some of these new C-arms that with rotational activities can give you axial, sagittal, and coronal imaging in the operating room. And that has really been helpful for all of us to 
assess our close reductions and the safety of our implants before we leave the operating room for both acetabular and femoral head and pelvic ring injury. So, for example, just two weeks ago, we had a guy that we were, as you get more and more experience, you push technique on people. And we had a guy with not a very safe conduit, but I thought it was safe enough to get a transsacral screw into. And then when we got this spin image, we could see that the threads on the opposite side were just in front of the anterior area of the SI joint. In the old days, we would have never known that, especially if you didn't get post-op CT scans. And I think it's a safe thing, but once you know it's not quite right in the operating room, you can fix it. It just gives you the opportunity to better assess what you're doing. So the fluoroscopic understanding, the fluoroscopic imaging and then these techniques that they give you to assess your performance in the operating room have been um, just fantastic. I mean, just I would have I would have given like a finger to have some of these things in the early late 80s and early 90s. I, I just can't tell you how valuable that would have been for our learning early on to have a device like that that could have given us immediate feedback. I can't tell you how many times I went straight from the OR to the recovery room, waited for the patient to wake up, did the neurological examination, waited for the, him to recover enough to go to the CT scan, and then walk down to the CT scan and have my wife sort of insert my patient into their schedule to get a post-op scan right up immediately so we could see if these screws were exactly where we thought they were when we were just getting started. So I'd say the first 100 patients, those post-op CT scans were just crucial. It's something that people take for granted now. Even the preoperative 3D remodeling of the CT scan has Yeah, we didn't have any of those, you know. Yeah. We we had some 3D CT scans, but they you know, they took forever to get and they just weren't anything like today. And just having those today is just it's just it changes everything. Yeah. You gave the John Border lecture at last year's OTA meeting entitled What Matters. This was an outstanding, definitely an inspirational talk that I recommend to everyone. And for those listeners who haven't heard it, it's still available in its entirety at the OTA.org website. Chip, for those who haven't heard it, or perhaps even for those who have, can you highlight a few of your points that you made during that talk in terms of what some of the things that were most important to you? That's a good question. The whole basis of the talk is just gratitude. And the first thing I think people should have is gratitude for you know, I call it a tree of gratitude. It's just the people that helped you get where you were going. And I've mentioned several of them, although I haven't mentioned, but maybe a 10th of of the ones that should have been mentioned. But the focus of the talk was just, I would say a gratitude. And then, you know, it was about meaningful relationships as well. I think meaningful relationships is really important. And that that's with patients as well as just your colleagues and, and your family members. We all rely upon meaningful relationships to sort of carry us through our day-to-day lives and over the long haul. And that, that can be anyone from your wife to your partner, to your parents, to your kids, to your best friends, whoever it is. And then for me, these patients that I take care of, and especially those ones in the early, late 80s and early 90s, those people were critical to me for my just knowledge and career. And those patients became my best friends, basically. Uh, so I, I would say it's uh, foundation of gratitude, uh, meaningful relationships. You know, I also talk about a variety of uh, people to emulate. I think the ability to emulate people that you see as standard bearers is very important. And it's a version of gratitude. But, you know, if you can find people that can set work standards and performance standards and affability standards for you, interpersonal standards, communication standards, whatever it may be that you have trouble with, 
just find someone who does it very well and who's been successful at it and then do what they do or, or do it better and help yourself to be more like them. So I, I've identified over the course of my career a variety of people that just set standards for me that I try to emulate. I, I'm not always successful emulating them, but I certainly have tried to emulate them. And then I also talked about having a foundation of faith. I think one of the things that people lack today is just a foundation of faith. And we all get challenges as life goes on from day to day. And I think people, if they haven't found some foundation of faith, it makes the struggle much more intense. And I, 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 that was another thing that I discussed in my talk was just having a foundation of faith and making sure you make sure that's strong to rely upon it when you need it. It's the rock we stand on. Uh, that's great. I really admire the way you started out our session today talking about some of the people that were influential when you first started out. When you look back on it, who have been the people that have been most influential over your career? Well, I think my parents were very influential. You know, they they pushed me to perform uh, academically and they uh, it was something I enjoyed doing. And so they, they, they always made sure that that was something that even if they weren't too interested in it, they sure made it seem like they were interested in it. But they were always very, I think, uh, instrumental in that. And I, you know, I had really good teachers in high school that uh, sort of helped me out. A great coach that sort of taught me the uh, value of just working hard. Our foreman on our ranch, a guy named Henry Zintek, you know, he was intolerant of any type of flawed performance. And so if you were stringing fence or you were roofing barns or you were branding cat, whatever you're doing, it had to be right. And if it wasn't right, man, he, is, he would get after you. So I, I had really early performance expectations that were put upon me, even when I was a little boy, you know, just working on our farm. And Henry used to always remind us that he had been with my family much longer than I had. You know, he had been the foreman of our ranch long before I was born. And he always reminded me that, you know, he could get rid of me anytime he wanted to because my family liked him better than they liked me. So I think Henry and people like that were instrumental. I went to college. I had great teachers in college. I went to, you know, like I said, Ben Allen helped me so much. And then I've had good friends, you know, over the years that have helped me when I was really trying to figure out where my career was eight years ago and what I should do and you know, whether I should take this career leap and move, you know, there were some people like Mark Swinkowski that circled back to help me and give me really great advice. Andy Burgess, Sam Agnew, you know, all of these people. And then, of course, you know, Walt Lowe has been wonderful just sort of supporting me. And you know, it just I would say everywhere from professional relationships to personal relationships. I have a couple of cousins that I you know, hunt with and shoot with and grew up with and They've been extremely helpful as well. and But I mean, if you really want to boil it down to the person that's most important, it's just been my wife. My wife has been uh, just sort of tolerant of me for over 30 years. And, you know, every every time I say, well, what do you think about this? She says, oh, it sounds great. Let's do that. You know, she's just been very enthusiastic about everything we've done, whether it's, you know, getting on a, in the car and moving to Seattle when, you know, we didn't know a soul out there. And she's been fantastic. So. Yeah, I would say as uh, Janet, she always describes herself as being a good sport. So she's a very good sport. And I think it's important for people. I talked about that in the border lecture as well to surround yourself with people that are very good sports that can help you and be supportive when because uh, it's not always easy. You know? Yeah, no, that's great. It's not that long that orthopedic trauma has been around. You said it was mid 80s that you first saw some of those changes. So where would you like to see the field of orthotrauma go from, from here? And, and what do you see as some of the challenges that we face in our contemporary 2020 orthopedic trauma? That's a very good question as well. You ask hard questions, but those are good questions. 
I think we've come a long way. Uh, I think we really have. But I would just say if there was one thing that I would hope for the future is that people continue to push the field and they continue to push their peers to help trauma get the acceptance that it warrants at every place universally. Trauma is not a respected field in a lot of institutions. Some see it as a necessary evil. They have to do it. It's just not given it's what it represents to an institution. And so I would hope that over time, places could understand the value of a very, very functional, efficient trauma system. And I'm not sure that we're going to get there fast, but you asked me what I would want for the field. And that's what I would want for the field is to, I work in a system right now that's extremely aware of how important trauma is. They respect the people that do the trauma. They realize that the patients are the sickest and need the most urgent care. And they devote the resources to that in making it an efficient system. And I just, I hope for the entire globe of trauma services that that can evolve as time goes on. From an orthopedic perspective, I just hope that people continue to try to learn as much as they can and be safe. There's a lot to learn. There's tons to learn. And it's hard to learn everything deep and wide. But a lot of the things that we do warrant a depth of knowledge that's critical for success. And the width and the breadth come at you pretty hard. That's easy to see. But the depth that's necessary in order to have the performance that you really want to have, it's harder. And I would hope that people can continue to work to get to that level of expertise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's something that will be more centralized in the future or decentralized as there's more and more people potentially interested in trauma? I, know, I don't know the right answer to that because you have these geographical differences that really make a difference. And so you know, early on regionalization of trauma centers was really important and uh, getting people there. And then as people have gotten more and more interested in it, it's been farmed out to the local communities. And so I, I really believe it just depends upon the level of service that they can provide and their exposures that they have. But I believe the way you get the best experience is to have the most exposure. And so mm-hmm. I'm a very biased, but very strong believer in super subspecialty expertise, the symbiosis of different people doing different things. I just think it all has a great benefit to the patient. I realize that everybody can't do it, but I think that's the dream. I think there is incredible value in super subspecialty. Or if I have a bunch of injuries, I really want whoever's best at the elbow doing my elbow and whoever's best at the proximal femur doing my, you know, I just, I want the expert, not just the person who's pretty good at it. Sure. But that's the way I feel. (laughs) Sure. For any of those people just starting out in their careers in trauma, any last piece of advice that you think you would would give them? Well, I would I would develop the relationships with people that are around them that can help them. You know, uh, I think it's important for people to realize that the people around you don't have to be in competition with you. They can be in symbiosis with you and get the help that you need in order to learn what you need to learn an easier way rather than the hard way. I see so many people you know, they'll come and talk to you after they've done something rather than beforehand. And they make mistakes that could be easily avoided if they would just talk to you beforehand. So Mm -hmm. I I just uh, would encourage people to use the value that's around them and not see their colleagues as competition, but see their colleagues as colleagues and people that can help them to learn things. And just because someone gives you advice, that doesn't mean you have to take it but the advice that they give you may be incredibly 
helpful to you and it might give you a different insight into what you've learned. It's just a way to expand your knowledge base and to help you to just know more and more and more. That seems to be something that people don't do enough of. And that was something we used to do a lot of. We really relied. I mean, it's the reason I got a career is I was relying on Ted Hansen to sort of tell me what to do. And yeah, one little flippant phrase and there you go. <laughs> That's great advice. Chip, I want to really thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate y'all asking me to be a part of it, and I hope that it was sufficient. Thank you. It was great. Thank you again to all of our listeners for joining us, and please subscribe to the OTA podcast channel at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the OTA podcast, a Convey MD production. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the OTA channel wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about becoming a member and providing the highest quality orthopedic trauma care, visit the Orthopedic Trauma Association at OTA.org.